you could, turn, uh, turn with me to Hebrews 3. I'm going to be in Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a, as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful over all of God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray that we would hold fast our confidence and our boasting in Christ. And that you would be glorified through us and that we would find our identity in who you are. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So a few years ago when I was uh, going to the college at Southwestern here in Fort Worth, um, Dr. Russell Moore from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission came to speak about ethics and family and culture. And uh, he was telling this story about his time at a seminary teaching ethics. And he started this ethics class with the foundations of ethics and the theory of ethics, and most importantly, the importance of having this Christ-centered ethic. Um, he, so he started with the foundations of ethics before he lectured on ethical situations like abortion and, and free speech and whatnot. Well, he spent a, the first few class periods talking about this when one student finally raised his hand and said, Dr. Moore... This is all fine and good, but can you please just tell me what to do when I get into ethical situations? Like, just tell me what to do. And thinking about this situation, I think a lot of times we come to the Bible the same way as this young man did in his ethics class. What I mean is, we look for it just to tell me what to do. We go to the Bible, just tell me. Give me the five steps on being a better leader. Give me the five steps on having a better marriage. What, what do I need to do to get rid of such and such habits? Whether it's intentional or unintentional, we go to the Bible kind of, kind of as a to-do list in order to enhance our lives. But when we come to the Bible in this lens, we kind of miss what the Bible is all about. The primary purpose of the Bible is not to give us a to-do list, a list of do's and don'ts. Its primary purpose is to point us to a person, Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus being the foundation that all of these other things come to place. You want a better marriage? Look to Christ and his, the sacrifice he made for his bride. Want to be a better leader? Look to Christ and how he graciously leads his church in communion with the Father. Want to break sinful, sinful habits? Treasure Christ and his glory. This is why, this is why you, when you hear sermons on marriage with Jesus just tacked on the end, it doesn't really change anyone. Jesus doesn't, believe, doesn't need to be tacked on the end. He's the beginning, the middle, and the end. And though many of us probably weren't taught this or we don't realize it at first, the Old Testament points us to Christ on every page. And Jesus himself actually shows how he is the climax of many of these Old Testament promises. And no other book in the, Old Te in the New Testament shows how the Old Testament pointed to Christ more than the book of Hebrews. 
The author of the Hebrews, by the way, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is. A lot of people at Southwestern say it's Luke. I'm not that convinced, so I'm just going to refer to him as the author of Hebrews. So the author. The author of Hebrews systematically goes through the Old Testament's leaders and institutions and paints this, this picture of Christ being superior to the Old Covenant. It's not that the Old Covenant was bad. It wasn't. Um, in fact, the Old Covenant was a good thing. It's just that it was unable to accomplish what Christ accomplished. Um, Christ himself tells us in Luke that the Old Covenant pointed to him. Remember the walk to Emmaus? Jesus had just risen from the dead. He's walking with his two followers. And he goes through the law and the prophets, the Hebrew scriptures, and shows how they testify about him. And as we read the Old Testament, we, see, we can see that the Christ is actually, the, the Old Testament testifies about Christ on every page. So it's not like something like the law of Moses was bad. It wasn't. It was actually a really good thing. It was just unable to save God's people from their sin and accomplish what Christ accomplished. Christ is sufficient to save us from our sin, and the law pointed us to Christ anyway. So Hebrews goes through this kind of this biblical theology, this landscape of the Old Testament, and shows how Christ is superior. He can't stop talking about Jesus and his greatness. So if I could summarize Hebrews into one phrase, if I could, if I could tweet Hebrews, it would just be, Jesus is superior. Jesus is greater. Jesus is sufficient. I don't know. That might be over 160 characters. I don't know. Uh, so why is the author of Hebrews making this point? Why is he going through the Old Testament and showing how Christ is greater? Well, he points his readers to Christ's superiority to warn them against apostasy. Um, you see this all over Hebrews. Um, and more specifically, he's actually warning them against two kinds of apostasy. The first is apostasy into sin, going back into sin. He's saying, look, Christ is superior over your sin. He is better than sin. Look to him. Do not fall back into your sin because Christ is so much greater than your sin. But not only was he warning them against apostasy into sin, he was actually warning this very Jewish audience. He was warning them against falling back and apostatizing back into Judaism. This is very similar to what Paul was doing in Galatians. Remember in the Galatians, the Judaizers were convincing these Gentile believers that in order to be a part of the people of God and to be justified by God, they were to circumcise themselves based on the law of Moses. In other words, they were saying, hey, you Gentiles, to be a part of the people of God, you have to be a Jew like us. Similarly here, the author is urging his readers not to turn from Christ and to revert back into Judaism. He is urging them to hold fast in the midst of really heavy persecution. Why? Because when pressure hits us, when culture condemns us, and when persecution comes, that's when the temptation to revert back is the strongest. And I know, like, in our American culture, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to compare persecution in our, our culture um, with the persecution that's going, around, going on around the world. But even here, we, we see pressure in our culture. Like, for example, we, we, you know, a senator in America pretty much said, if you believe in the exclusivity of Christ, then you do not belong in the public office. So the author's point here is when we feel the pressure to reject the one who saved us, persevere in your Christian walk by looking to Christ and his superiority. That's the point. So the author begins Hebrews with Christ's superiority over the angels. That's chapter 1. 
And then he goes into Christ's superiority, or Christ as the greater high priest in chapter 2. In chapter 4, we see his superiority over Joshua, and then Aaron, then Melchizedek, then the sacrifices made in the Old Testament. And ultimately, the author shows how he is superior to the Old Covenant itself. So his, his message is clear. If any of you doubt Christ's sufficiency in worth, consider these things, that he is superior. So, we get to our passage at hand here, Hebrews chapter 3, and we see that um, Christ is superior to Moses. So why mention Moses at all? From our 21st century American context, I mean, for us, it's pretty obvious that Christ is superior to Moses. It's like, duh, of course Jesus is greater than Moses. Um, It seems pretty obvious. So why why mention it at all? I mean, if you read the Bible once, if you breeze through the Bible, it does not take long to see that Moses was a huge deal. Well, the author of Hebrews is writing to a Jewish community who was evangelized to the first apostles. Uh, some of these, they, they flat out rejected the gospel. Some of them got it intellectually and, and proved by their actions that they, they, they really didn't get it. But there was a small Jewish community, this small Jewish community who repented of their sins, saw Jesus as greater, put their faith in him, and trust in him. That's who the author is writing to, this small community. He's writing to this small community of Jews. Now, to a Jew, Moses was a huge deal. It was Moses that God used to deliver the Israelites from slavery. It was Moses whom God spoke to directly. It was Moses who God acted as a mediator between God and the Israelites. And most importantly, it was Moses whom whom God entrusted his holy law to. Moses was great in the eyes of the Jews. Some, by the way, even thought he was greater than the angels. So God spoke through Moses to his people But now, as the author of Hebrews says in like the very first couple verses, God has spoken through his son. So Moses was an important figure, and Moses was a great man. But the author of so what the author of Hebrews is doing here is showing this Jewish community their greatest hero of all time and comparing him to Jesus to prove that Jesus is even greater than Moses. That's how great Jesus is. But even more so, the author is telling his readers that their identity as God's people was to be, be placed in Christ. Where was it before? Where was their identity before Christ? Um, what distinguished Israel as God's people? When other nations saw Israel, when they saw Israel, what was that obvious identifier that marked them out as God's people? It was the law of Moses. It was the Mosaic Covenant. See, the law of Moses, it wasn't this horrible thing that God used to just burden and badger his people. There was nothing wrong with the law. In fact, being under the, Moses, but the law of Moses was a privilege to them because it distinguished them from the other pagan nations and showed all other nations that they were God's people. But this J- small Jewish community the author is writing to, they were being heavily persecuted, which at times obviously can cause our faith. We can, we can be tempted to reject what Christ saved us from, or reject Christ. The temptation to revert back into Judaism and reestablish the law of Moses as their identity was very strong. So when the author of Hebrews comes in and contrasts Moses and Jesus, he is saying that they are no longer to identify themselves as God's people by being under the law of Moses, but rather they are to identify themselves as God's people through faith in Jesus Christ. Christ is better than Moses. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. Going back into Judaism and forsaking Christ, the very, the very person the law pointed to in the first place would be considered falling away from the faith. 
Not that you can lose your salvation. That's not what I'm saying. That's obviously not what the author of Hebrews is saying. But falling back would prove that they never had it to begin with. So with all that said, our passage in Hebrews 3 will show us that Christ is superior to Moses in three ways. So the first way in which the author shows that Christ is greater than Moses is that Jesus is greater than Moses in his office. This is verse 1 through 2. I'll read it again. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is, the, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. So, consider Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews is asking his hearers to do, is to consider Jesus. And that's what we ought to do as well, is to consider Jesus. Do you feel temptation to lying? Consider Jesus. Do you feel the temptation to cheat? Consider Jesus. Do you feel the pressures of the world bearing down on you? Consider Jesus. Sexual sin? Consider Jesus. Pride? Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. That's how he begins this passage. And then he characterizes Christ in verse 1, you can see it there, as apostle and high priest of our confession. This is really important because as apostle, Christ will bring deliverance to his people by leading them to the promised land and fulfilling God's covenant promises. And as high priest, Christ will be the mediator of his people and save them from their sin. Note to self, don't eat salty popcorn before you preach. Um, The author already explained Christ's role as high priest in chapter 2. Um, and his mention of it here flows nicely in, sh- in verse 1 into this comparison between Jesus and Moses. Why? Because Jesus or Moses functioned as a high priest as well. He acted as a mediator between God and his people. Remember, God, God rescues the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. He brings them to Sinai. Moses goes up to the mountain to hear God's law. And what do the people do? They build an idol. They build a golden calf to worship. And God decides to destroy them. And it's Moses who intercedes on God's, people's beha- on God's people's behalf. He intercedes for them, and God spares them. So he acted as a high priest. He acted as a mediator. Um, but Christ is a greater high priest. He is a better mediator. He intercedes upon our behalf by going to the cross. Destruction is brought upon him, so we would not have to bear destruction. He is the greater high priest. So consider Jesus. Why? Because like Moses, he was faithful in all of God's house. Okay, so it's really important to note here that God's house is not referring to the temple. It's not referring to the tabernacle. It's not referring to a physical house. It's referring to the church. So if you hear the phrase God's house throughout this sermon or throughout this passage, we're talking about the church here. Jesus is the faithful high priest over the church who is faithful to his people. He will not fail his people. Now, the reference the author makes here when he says, just as Moses also was faithful in God's house, in verse 2, it actually echoes back to uh, an Old Testament passage, Numbers 12, 6 through 8. Um, you don't have to turn there. I'll go ahead, ahead and read it. Um, here, Miriam and Aaron are they're challenging Moses' authority. They're challenging, challenging his authority. And this is God's response to them. Listen to this. Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the glory of the Lord. So Moses was faithful in all of God's house. And Moses was the only one privileged to speak with God. He says mouth to mouth. God spoke with everyone else in dreams, visions, I don't know, through, through angels. 
But through Moses, God spoke to directly. So when Aaron and Miriam challenged Moses, they were actually challenging God. Because God set him up as his spokesman. But Jesus is greater than Moses. So he, because he has fully made God known. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. So if challenging Moses is challenging God, how much more is challenging Jesus challenging God? And this brings us to the next way we see that Jesus is greater than Moses. That is, Jesus is superior to Moses in his actions and in his work. He is superior to Moses in his work. This is verse 3 through 4. It says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So, in the Old Testament... God promises that he would raise up for his people a son who would build his house and whose throne would be established forever. The house that God would build would not be a temporary house, but a house that would last forever. Christ and Christ is this son who would build his house and who is now ruling on his throne. Christ is the builder of the house. Again, what the author refers to as house here is the covenant people of God, the church. Think Think Ephesians 2.19, Paul says, You are no longer strangers or sojourners, but citizens with the saints in the household of God. And it is Christ who built his house, who built his church by his blood. And he receives more glory for being the builder of the house. To, to use an illustration, I have this acquaintance who got back from the military a few years ago. And he got this plot of land, and he actually built a house on this plot of land. But the thing is, he didn't use a contractor he installed the plumbing himself, he laid the brick himself, he laid the concrete himself, he installed the electricity himself, whatever else it takes to build a house, I don't know. Um, but the point is, he did all of this by himself. He didn't, he didn't have a degree in anything related to that. He just went and he built a house. I had no idea he could do this. So when I, when I saw this house, I was impressed, but I wasn't impressed with the house as much as I, I was with the guy who built the house. In biblical terms, the glory, so to speak, went to, the house, went to my friend, not the house itself. This is kind of what the author of Hebrews is getting at here. The builder of the house receives more glory than the house itself. Jesus receives the glory for building this house, and he has built this house. How? Through the death and resurrection, and is continuing to build his house as the gospel is proclaimed throughout the nations. And we can be a part of this house, too, if we place our faith in him. But there's even a further implication here to God, Christ building his house. Um, there's actually more to him just building it. Um, what does that... The, the, okay, the prophet Zechariah actually gives us further implication as to what this means. Um, you don't have to turn, turn there again. Um, it's going to be from Zechariah 6.13. Zechariah says, It is he, the Messiah, it is he who shall build his temple, the house of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and he shall sit and rule on his throne. So the implication of Christ building his temple, his house, is that Christ is sitting and ruling on his throne now. He is the king now. He rules the nations. Christ is counted more worthy than Moses because he has built his house and he rules his house. Moses was just part of the house, but Christ built his house. And we are the temple of God who was purchased by his blood. And this is how Christ builds his house, by humbly going to the cross to defeat death and die for the sins of his people. His death and resurrection accomplished the building of the house. Moses, Moses could only serve the house. He could only serve it. 
But Christ receives more glory because he builds brick by brick the house through the death on a cross. So it's clear what the author of Hebrews is getting at here. He is telling his readers, don't put your faith and identity in Moses. He's just a servant of the house. Put your faith and identity in Christ. He is sufficient. He builds the house and he rules the nations. His work is greater than Moses. And this brings us to the third way in which Christ is greater than Moses. Christ is greater than Moses in his person. Uh, Verse 5 through the first part of verse 6 says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So, the climax of the passage, right here. There is a striking contrast between Moses the servant and Jesus the son. Servants, they do not inherit anything from their masters. Servants come and go through the years. Servants are not blood relatives of the masters. They do what their masters tell them. They, They are under the command of their masters. They can be fired. They can be replaced. But the son, that is a different story. The son inherits all that the father has, and all that the father has given to the son is the son's responsibility to watch over. There is no one who can replace the son. No one is given responsibility to care for the house like the son. Moses was a faithful servant in God's house, um, but Christ is is the son over God's house. Um, It's no small role to be a servant. It's great to be a servant in God's house. It's really great. There's a lot of honor in it. But a servant is still a servant. And Jesus is greater than Moses because he is no mere servant. He is God, and he owns the house. I mean, it was, it was Jesus who created Moses in the first place. It would be crazy to go revert back to the law of Moses when Moses is complete, entirely dependent on Jesus anyway. It's like comparing, this is a somewhat faulty comparison, but it's like comparing a third grade little leaguer to a professional baseball player. Who would you get baseball advice from, the, the little leaguer or the professional? And I know that, that, that example's lacking, but the point is Jesus is so much greater than Moses because Moses is entirely dependent on Jesus. So the author is saying to his readers, don't revert back on Moses, to Moses. Have faith in the guy who created Moses. Put your confidence and your boast in him. The author also says that the purpose of Moses was to testify to the things that were spoken later. It's kind of an odd phrase, to testify to the things that were spoken later. What that simply means is Moses points us to Christ. Uh, Remember a few weeks ago, we were in Acts 3. Um, Remember what Peter says about Moses? He actually quotes Moses, and Moses saying, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. In other words, Moses himself points to a day where a greater prophet would rise up, would rule, and would love his people, and would judge those who refuse him. So think of the author of Hebrews here. He's like, it would be crazy for you guys to revert back to Moses when Moses himself pointed to Christ directly. He literally prophesied about someone greater than him coming. But not only was Moses, did Moses point to him to Christ directly, he, God using Moses to deliver his people and eat from Egypt points to Christ as well. In other words, the slavery the Israelites endured in Egypt, along with God saving them through the blood of the slaughtered lamb at Passover, 
all the way to the rest in the promised land flowing with milk and honey is to point us to Christ who would free his people from slavery to sin by the blood of himself that we may enjoy rest for eternity in his presence. Christ has authority over the house as a son by virtue of being the slaughtered lamb and redeeming his people from their sin and giving them eternal rest. He has authority over the people of God. Christ is on his throne, reigning and ruling all of us now. Again, in verse 5, the author echoes back to Numbers 12 when Miriam and Aaron test Moses' authority. God warned them not to, not to speak against Moses, for he was God's servant. But there is an even more serious warning against rejecting the claims of Christ in the gospel. To reject Christ, to question Christ's authority, is to reject God and question God's authority. And so that gets us to, the, to verse 6, the, the conclusion of the passage. The author says, verse 6, But Christ is faithful over all of God's house as a son. We just went over that. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So how do you know if you're in God's house? The house that Christ has built by his blood? By putting your confidence and your boast in the hope. The hope here is Jesus Christ. The author in verse 6 draws his readers to examine themselves to see if they really believe Christ is greater. The knowledge that Christ is completely faithful carries with it the assurance that he is entirely worthy of our trust and our confidence. So I want to point out just three reflecting questions we need to ask ourselves in light of this passage. First reflecting question, what are we putting our confidence in? Another way to put this is, what is the object of your hope? What is the object of your hope? Where are you putting your hope? Something tells me here most of you aren't hoping in the law of Moses, but are you putting your confidence and your hope in something other than Jesus? If the world could see your life, if you lived in this glass fishbowl, where would they say your confidence lied? Would it be in the way you look or your status or your personality? Or would they say your confidence lies in, in your job? Is that where your hope is? If your job were taken from you today, if your job were taken from you, would you feel that all hope was lost. Or maybe your confidence is not in a job, but your dream for a future retirement, getting out of your job. Like, when I get rid of this crazy boss of mine and this exhausting job, then I'll be truly happy. Then I'll find real rest. Is that where your ultimate hope is in? If it is, you're missing true rest in Christ now. Rest in retirement is going to be fleeting and quick, but rest in Christ is eternal. Or perhaps your hope is in a political party or taking back America. Do you feel that all hope is lost when, when your opposing party is elected? Did you despair eight years ago? Or are you despairing now from the political, political climate? And are you dismayed by the injustice that is in our culture? Rest in Christ. Who Put your confidence in Christ, who is sovereign over all elections in the nations, and, and who is always just. When he sees injustice, when you see injustice, always look to the one who is always just. Or perhaps your confidence is actually in your own works righteousness. If you are a believer here today, where is your confidence after your sin? Where is your hope? Is your hope in, in Christ's finished work on your behalf? Or is it in your works, trying to just clean yourself up and atone for your own sin? This is why I hate the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. Because God helps those who could never help themselves. It's like the point of the gospel. We can't clean ourselves up. We can't atone for our own sin. Don't put your confidence in your own works. Put your confidence in the one who worked on your behalf. Consider Jesus who obeyed every dot of the law, 
who loved and obeyed God to the fullest on your behalf. If you have placed your faith in Christ, God sees Christ's righteousness applied to you. Put your confidence in his work. Consider Jesus. Also, where is your confidence when persecution and suffering hits? Remember the audience of Hebrew. They were being heavily persecuted and had this strong temptation to revert back into Judaism. Um, But where does the author point him to? He points him to Jesus. So when we are suffering, when we are abandoned, or if we're going through loneliness or depression, where does your hope lie? I would plead with you, much like the author is doing here, to consider Jesus, who won't abandon you, who is always good, and even through suffering and depression is always with you. He himself suffered and understands your suffering. He has been lonely. He understands your loneliness. Uh, Just think of Stephen. We just learned about Stephen in Acts a couple weeks ago. Um, Where was his hope when those who opposed him challenged his allegiance to Christ? It was in Christ himself. Christ was where Stephen's confidence lied. Stephen treasured Christ above all things and can endure every stone that was cast upon him because he saw Christ as glorious. He treasured Christ. So look to Christ in your suffering. Put your confidence in him. Look to him in your loneliness and depression. He is good. Consider him. Second reflecting question we need to ask. Where is our identity? Is it in Christ or is it in something else? Is your whole identity wrapped up in your job? Is that how you identify yourself with your job? Or perhaps you're a mother and a wife here today, and your whole identity is being placed in being the perfect mom or the perfect wife, and you make yourself miserable because you see all these other, other moms around, around you, and you think, why can't I be like them? Why do they have it all together? Why can't I have my, my life all together? I would plead with you to consider Jesus. Put your identity in him. Or maybe you're a seminary student here, and your identity is wrapped up on online debates about theology. Or you're an aspiring pastor, and your whole identity is wrapped up in being the next John Piper, or Tim Keller, or D.A. Carson. And you're just not going to be satisfied until you get that book published, and you're, you're asked to speak at all the conferences. Almost always, when we put our identity in anything other than Jesus Christ, it will always, almost always, breed sin. Sin is always at the front door when we put our identity, identity in anything other than our creator. I mean, how many stories have you heard where a pastor's whole identity was in his own ministry, his own platform? And how many times have you seen that pastor fall? Um, I can't even count the times I've seen a, a minister idolize his, own, idolize his own platform or ministry at the expense of his, family's, his family and his own spiritual life. With the result being adultery and church splits and pride and even the destruction of that platform they worked so hard to build. Maybe placing your identity in other things has led you into further sin. Neglect of family, outbursts of anger, lust, pride, jealousy over someone else's gifts. Consider Jesus. Place your identity in him. Or maybe your identity is in your very sin itself. Maybe you look at your past and present sin and think, well, this is just who I am. Well, I looked at porn again. This is just who I'm always going to be. Well, I bursted out in anger toward my kids. This is just the type of parent I'm always going to be. If you have trusted in Christ and find him as your only hope, that your identity is not in past or present sin. Fight the lie of your own flesh and of the devil that this is who you are. This is what makes you who you are. 
If you have trusted in Christ, your identity is no longer in being a liar or a drunk or a porn addict or a fornicator or a slanderer or a gossip or a racist or whatever sin you feel the weight of. Christ has taken your shame and your guilt and he has put it on himself and has clothed you with your glorious righteousness. Guys, if you even trust in Christ, it's even wrong for me to say, put your identity in him. There's nothing to put. Your identity is in him. Believe that your identity is in him. Fight the lie that, that your sin makes you who you are. Consider Jesus. Consider his righteousness given to you. And if you're not a Christian here today, if you, if you feel the weight of your sin and you have not repented and trusted in Christ, look to him. He is so much greater than your sin. He is so much greater. Your sin will not bring you true joy. Christ will bring you true joy. Look to him. Consider him. And the third and final reflecting question we need to ask is, how as a church can we help each other point, point each other um, to Jesus when our identity and confidence is not in him? What did verse 6 say again? We are part of the what? The household of God if our confidence and our boasting in, are, is, are in him. The household of God, the church. We as a community, as a household of God, need to constantly be pointing each other to Christ. Just like the author of Hebrews is constantly pointing his hearers to Christ. We are not meant to live life alone. And as a community, we must constantly and continually point each other to, uh, each other to Jesus. This is what I miss about Dusty Devers who, who went and planted a church in Oklahoma. Like, you could be tying your shoe and the guy would point you to Christ somehow. So when you are in your care group, when you're getting coffee, hanging out with your, just hanging out, and you see your brother or sister tempted to put their identity or their hope or their boast in anything other than Christ, tell them to consider Jesus. Look to Jesus. I mean, he is the source of true joy. Like, like real joy. Point each other to him, to real joy. When someone confesses sin to you, point them to Jesus and his righteousness. Help each other throughout the week to cherish Christ. When you see your brother or sister suffering, point them to Jesus. Look to Christ. He is sufficient. He is good. Don't let your brothers or sisters here trust or hope in anything other than him because it only leads to destruction. So if your confidence in your identity is in anything other than Christ, whether it be a job or a de- degree program or retirement or a political party or your very sin, consider Jesus. And why don't we do so now as we take the Lord's Supper?